You so, you know how we're doing this masculinity podcast? Yes. I was just wondering, are you scared of me? That's John talking to his wife, Noelle. Yeah, and I was kind of alarmed at how long she took to think about it. Anyway, here's what she said. I think all women are aware of how much bigger than them and stronger than them men are. And I think we are also aware on a certain level of the implications of that. Okay, but are you scared of me? No, no, I'm not scared of you. I mean, I know, I know what you're capable of. I've seen those photos of you after rugby matches with the black eyes and the bruises and the stitched up cuts. So I know that you have experience, shall we say, in that arena of physical violence. But I also know when I think about it, that's in the context of sport. So it's a particular context. So no, I'm, I'm not scared of you, but I suppose I've never been between you and something you wanted to get to either. So that's okay then. Yeah, not quite as clear cut as I would have liked, to be honest. How do I be a man? Is it with a firm handshake? To stare a man in the eyes until one of us shatters. This is He'll Be Right, a six-part podcast from Bird of Paradise Productions and Stuff about how to be a modern man. It's a fragile I'm Glenn McConnell. And I'm John Daniel. I hadn't thought about it from her perspective before, but I guess what Noel said is obvious. I'm literally about twice her size. But there's another side to this. We live in the country, so yeah, if, if there's a strange noise in the dead of the night, it's going to be you getting up to investigate rather than me. That is true. Like, I guess, most husbands, I'm the first line of defence. Largely against possums, true, but it could be anything. I like having a man around. It's an age-old mindset, arguably less and less relevant in the modern world, but it still has a big hold on the way we think. A man's physical strength is attractive. Fundamentally, it's about having the ability to protect and serve the vulnerable, especially your own people. But that strength is a double-edged sword. While it offers a role of responsibility and duty, it can be used against the vulnerable, often inside the family, on women and children. Sure, not all men abuse their power, but when it happens, the results can be devastating. A former Warriors player and his three children are dead and his wife seriously injured after a car in Brisbane was allegedly set alight. A woman was screaming. He had doused her with petrol when she got out. Before it gets to extremes, this stuff starts with smaller moments that we all go through, often on a daily basis. So in this episode, we're going to talk about those interactions between men and women, how what is acceptable is changing and what good approaches might look like. Don't be a dick. Right? That's Ellie Moore. We work together at Stuff. She's the Me Too editor. Whatever you think of Me Too, the social media campaign that took off after Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein was accused of sexual harassment and rape in 2017, it changed the way we talk about and think about how men use their power over women. There's been a lot of talk about how this has led to confusion among men. I was brought up, particularly by my grandmother, to be a gentleman. And while there's a lot of good in that idea, it's kind of a shorthand for be kind as well as strong, 
there were also a lot of baked-in assumptions about how men should act, because basically, men ran the world. And while it might be hard to unlearn, that just doesn't fly anymore. But with what she's learned from talking to women around New Zealand about their bad experiences, and with the help of her son, Ellie has come up with a helpful formula. My teenage son, when I'm talking to him about, he's just moved in with his girlfriend, so how they have to be careful about making sure that their roles are split evenly and, you know, all of that, dealing with women. And and I say, you know, I start to rabbit on in my motherly way and he, go, he interrupts me and he goes, I get it, Mum, don't be a dick. So it's gone from please be a gentleman to don't be a dick, right? That's how I, th- I see the younger generation of males negotiating this if they're dealing with women in good faith. Um, but I think there is con- still confusion, significant confusion. We'll hear from Ellie later, and we're also going to hear more specifically about how the younger generation are learning about how to navigate relationships. But first, don't be a dick. Might sound easy, but what does it look like in real life? If you think about it, I think you know I've probably been a dick. I've certainly done some dickish things. When the whole Me Too thing blew up, I couldn't help thinking over various interactions with women over the years, feeling a bit sweaty. Quite often booze was involved, which I would tend to think of as useful cover. But even now, in daily family life, I can get angry and, I guess, throw my weight around. So we were interested in talking to someone who deals with this stuff, like understanding where to put your anger. Ben is a father of two from Wellington who works with men, helping them end their cycle of aggression. And he knows about it because he's been there himself. Ben, who asked us not to use his second name, says a mate of his suggested he might want to do a course after seeing how he was acting. And I was like, uh, I don't need to go along to this course. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm fine. He suggested again. (laughs) And then he suggested again. And I think it was one day... I think it was one of my son's birthday parties. I think he was about five or six, I can't remember. And I just remember feeling really, really angry because I wanted everything, you know, I'd, I didn't want the kids to eat the cupcakes before the flipping pizza. And I remember the kids were coming in and out of the door and, and bringing in the mud and I was just getting angrier and angrier and I thought, something's wrong. Like, why am I, why am I raging? And, and so I'm just holding it together. Why am I raging on the inside? Because I want to control what these children are eating on the day. And I think in that moment, I thought maybe there's something to it. Also, my relationship with my wife wasn't great. For a year, Ben and his wife lived at opposite ends of the house. To be clear, Ben wasn't using physical violence against his family. Instead, he says his abuse was focused on control and verbal aggression. I used to yell at my kids and then feel absolutely miserable because I adore my two children and I would, I would be angry and frustrated at, at life, at everything not going my way. And so the, the cruel twist of domestic violence and, is that you hurt the ones you love. They get it. You put on the face when you're at work, you put on the face with your friends and as soon as you get home, and I don't know why, I, can't, I still haven't figured it out, but you, you attack the ones that you love the most. How common do you reckon this is? Oh. <laughs> like, would you be able to tell? Yeah, I see it everywhere. I see it when I'm in the park and I can see a father being short with his kids, you know, telling them how to eat that ice cream. 
put it down. Yeah, I can tell. I can I can hear it in the playground. I can see it in in my extended family and various levels. You know, I think I'd like all men to do the course. <laughs> really? Honest. Yeah, yeah. Especially I don't. I mean, I don't know about younger generation. You guys seem to sort of be more aware of it, but especially my age group and older. Yeah, we just get told to harden up. You know. We don't cry, go to your room and cry. That might ring a few bells. Ben and I are pretty much the same age and have similar backgrounds in masculine institutions. He's ex-military, I went to boarding school. Not quite the same thing, but you just knew what was expected. But is your generation different, Glenn? Well, all through high school, I can't remember a single time anyone would have seen me cry. But I do remember the kids who were vulnerable, who would get mad easily. Uh, they got targeted. Yeah, basically crying or any kind of visible display of emotion looked like weakness. For us, it was particularly anger. You'd need to control any emotion or you'd be the entertainment. (laughs) Uh, Which wasn't good looking back, but at the same time, maybe we were trying to show them that their anger wasn't cool. I guess it would have been worse if the angry ones had the power. Yeah, peer groups, they really set up your expectations, don't they? If your mates are telling you what's acceptable, you tend to go with it. But getting a sign-off on your behaviour from the people around you, it doesn't necessarily mean that's okay. Let's not forget it was one of Ben's friends who suggested he take the course. While most of us might look at the headlines about domestic violence and pat ourselves on the back that we're not like that, Ben says it's too easy to hide behind the distinction between physical and psychological violence. So... As long as you're not physically hitting, what I'm doing is not violent. You know, me slamming a door, me scouring across the table, me cutting my kids off and, and uh, you know, when I when I disagree with them, me screaming at my kids, that's that's not that's really not violent. That's not violent. Yeah. So then our behaviour is not violent. But it actually is. You're talking about that sense of needing to control things. Mm -hmm. Is it fair to say, I suppose in defence of angry men slightly, that there's a a sense of responsibility that men have as well that weighs very heavily on them and that this is a kind of a flip side to the control and... Mm -hmm. I think it all boils down to is that I strongly feel that we as men have no idea of the emotions that are happening within us. And we kind of have a default of just being angry because that's what we're good at and dismissive. And we bulldoze our way through life until it falls, all the wheels fall off and our life falls apart. Ben says there is a way to get through this, but it isn't easy. This ain't do a course and you're done. Like, this is a lifetime. I think the idea of people being angry in relationships or, or having arguments or, you know, disputes, mm-hmm. I think we're never... I mean, <laughs> no, we're not saying one of the problems because well, one of the problems, in a sense, as well, I, I think, is that we have this very high bar for what relationships are supposed to look like. Yes, hundred percent. Yes, that, and then it's unattainable, and yep. we feel bad because we're yep. not getting there. And we're not saying don't be angry. Like you're going to get angry. Someone cuts you off, you just get angry. Like it's just it's there, but it's it's like in your disagreement with your wife, are you hurling abuse about how much weight she's put on, and are you like destroying her, or are you expressing how taking it back to you and your frustrations? You know the small stuff and the big stuff. You should be able to negotiate without destroying 
the other person so that out the other side <laughs> you're not too wounded people. Do you think the situation's worse than it was for our parents' generation or the generation before? Like the 70s, the 60s, 50s, the man had his place at the table. And, you know, um, God forbid you'd, you'd sit there. And when you got home, there's my dinner. So things have definitely changed, but that sense of entitlement, I think, is still there, where I've worked really hard, so I need A, B and C, because that's my right. But if you've worked really hard, you've still got to fold the washing when you get home. Oh, that's, that's not my job. I, I do all the out, outdoor stuff. So it, it, it's about renegotiating and, and I suppose redefining what, what it is to be a man. We'll get to talking about things like testosterone in another episode. But how much does it matter what other people think? Like, does playing netball threaten your masculinity? My son played netball this, uh, last year. And, um, and I was like, oh, okay, cool. And I, was, I thought, oh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. And, and I loved it. Like, he is there, first game, he scored a goal. I'm, 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 I'm over the moon. But I found myself, when talking to other men, they said, oh, well, what's your boy up to? And I was like, and I found myself pausing. Oh, he's playing netball. And they're like, oh, can boys play that? I was like, yeah, yeah, he's really good at it. But just in that, in that little moment, what's this guy going to think of me if my son's playing netball? You know, he's seven years old. He's having the time of his life. Mm. But his dad struggling just a little bit with that. Ben says he can't wait to see his son back out on the netball court. And his relationship with his wife is working better. He's not saying he's perfect, but he's learned how to listen to her perspective. Now she can tell me when she's annoyed at my behaviour. Where I won't shut her down, justify it, minimise it, blame her. I go, yeah, you're right. I was being a dick the other day. She told me, she told me last week, she goes, the other morning when I was trying to get the kids out of the house, you were slamming the dishwasher, you were trying to get the kids out, you weren't helping, and I was annoyed at you all day. She told me that at the end of the day, and I said, yeah, you were right. Full stop. I said, you were right, my behaviour was not cool. But he says the kind of two-way conversation that's helped get him and his wife out of a hole is lacking in the Me Too movement. I'm not condoning, you know, the behaviour. Behaviour's wrong. 100% the, the, the behaviour's wrong, but we need to work together. You know, there's been too much, you know, the, there's the feminist movement and the Me Too movement, it goes back and forth, back and forth, where it's like, well, the men need to stop being angry. Well, <laughs> that's not the answer. We just need to sit down. Men need to work on themselves 100%, and then, we need, then men need to work with their partners in that environment together to work together. It's a fragile thing Fragile thing Working together and being kind seems like the key to any relationship. But it depends on good faith, which Me Too showed isn't always there. It kicked off with Harvey Weinstein. He's now been convicted of rape, but for years got away with sexual offending against women that was presented as questionable behaviour. That grey area argument resonated with a lot of men. Not so much that Weinstein-style sexual bullying was okay, more because that sort of transactional relationship, men using their power as sexual currency, felt like something that was embedded in a system we'd all signed up to as being the way of the world. At least, it was so widespread as to appear normal. 
And it was shocking when it turned out that many women weren't happy about it at all. It shouldn't have come as a surprise, though. We all heard about it because Weinstein was a Hollywood movie maker. But this kind of thing happens at fast food joints, law offices, anywhere. Still, there has been a backlash, arguably some of it from men who preferred not to think about the effect this was having on women in the first place. But also from straight-up people like Ben, who feel that it just hasn't helped. Here's Glenn talking to Ali Moore about it. Is the future looking brighter because of Me Too? It seems even worse. People won't yeah. apologise. People yeah. uh, are concerned about the law rather than what's right or wrong. Is it looking better? I hope the fog will clear, um, but I, I acknowledge the fog. Me Too was, you've got to remember, was a hashtag. You know, it was an explosion of an international explosion of feeling. It wasn't a planned campaign. It just, boom, blew up. And it was messy and uncontrollable. So to imagine that it would have rolled out nicely as a series of policy and legislative changes is a fantasy. But what's the alternative? Not to have had that like, I have no regrets because the alternative would be not to have had this conversation, messy as it is, and have nothing, have, have no possibility of change. We asked Ellie for an example. There was one woman's case who we followed who was a, quite a senior legal worker. So not a lawyer, but a legal support worker. And she was harassed over the course of 10 years by her boss, who was a partner in the firm and a rainmaker brought in probably millions of dollars a year. Ellie didn't want to go into all the details in case it revealed too much. This kind of thing is legally sensitive, but basically the guy was touching himself in front of the woman on a regular basis and it made her feel very uncomfortable. She tried to sort it out without even making a formal complaint and that didn't work because he blatantly ignored it. And if he had at that point said oh my gosh, I realise that my behaviour, whether it's involuntary or deliberate, has affected probably dozens of employees over the past 20 years, and I'm sorry, then that would have made a great difference. Instead, when he was confronted, he said he had a medical condition and was just rubbing in some cream. For years, apparently. So what happened next? Several months later, they engineered her out of her job in a redundancy. Ellie says the firm's priority was protecting their big earner rather than doing the right thing. And unfortunately, if there's one bad thing that's happened after Me Too, is that people are less likely to apologise, I think. There seems to be a culture of just deny. I'm worried that we can sort of end up in a culture war and, and that sort of mm. sense of I know what's right and I'm telling you that this is what you have to do and people get defensive. And that is exactly why I say yes to speaking engagements about it at organisations and, and corporations, employers, because I think that you could, if you read my material, you could assume that I come from a very rigid standpoint and that I'm making those prescriptions that you just described. Whereas actually... I like to explain to people that I know how messy this is. I really do. And I know that there are shades of grey and it's not black and white. And, yeah, and I can describe to them what might be a middle road for them and their organisation. 
and how to embrace it without, it without causing, how to embrace Me Too without causing chaos. So recognise that there may be some staff, some probably female staff that have had an uncomfortable time and commit to dealing with that in a rational, sensible way that protects everybody, which is actually all the movement is asking for. There are voices on the fringe that are calling for blood, but there is, hopefully when the fog clears, there is a, a way forward that protects everybody. That actually sounds a lot like what Ben was talking about. Recognise the harm, acknowledge wrongdoing, and set ground rules that allow everyone to work on being better at this kind of situation. Yeah, although it was interesting to hear Ali say that what she writes is a bit different from what she might say in person. Maybe the media have something to answer for in all this? When Ali's in the newspaper, she's not talking about grey cases. These are clearly abusive men taking advantage. Does that mean every man who's ever done something wrong will be crucified? I don't think so. It seems to be more about acknowledging that grey behaviour could be better. Those grey areas, the fog, exist because people have different approaches to sex. Just coming to terms with your own desire can be confusing and guilt-ridden. Then there are layers of expectation and cues that can be hard to read when you take that desire out into the world to meet someone else. But these days, kids are being educated about a framework that they can use as they start to explore. I think this is brilliant. When I was at school, sex education was basically an hour about testes and fallopian tubes and zygotes. I was clueless. Yeah, 25 years on, mine was no different. Although, we did have the internet. When we first started talking about this, you mentioned this tea video. Yeah, it came out just as I was leaving high school as one of those viral Let's Change the World videos. If you're still struggling with consent, just imagine instead of initiating sex, you're making them a cup of tea. You say, hey, would you like a cup of tea? Yeah, so I have to say I watched this and I had some issues with it. And if they say no thank you, then don't make them tea. This feels dangerously oversimplified, doesn't it? It's a while ago now, but as a teenage boy, I was massively invested in finding someone to drink tea with. I mean, there's a biological urge to have tea and even the social image of yourself, your identity, everything is screaming at you to get this person pretty much anyone, to have tea. Yeah, you might be asking a bit much of a two-minute video here. It's just a good ground rule, and I think they're trying to dial down the stakes around it. If you can understand how completely ludicrous it is to force people to have tea when they don't want tea, and you're able to understand when people don't want tea, then how hard is it to understand it when it comes to sex? Okay, let's hear from someone who's at the coalface with us. Leah Rothman has a background in social work. Over the last 10 years, she's been working on consent programs for young people in the Wellington region. So how do we say yes? How do we say no? As a culture, we don't often talk about the yes. We really focused on the no. So talking, we try to introduce how you say yes to certain things and how you can say no to other things. We talk about it as a continuum and we give a framework for the young people to use to get consent or to not get consent, to have the consent discussion. We tend to think of sex as being private, but dealing with the straightforward facts of it in public is an important first step. When I go into a classroom, or when any of these facilitators go into a classroom, 
you say sex or you say penis or you say vulva and everyone laughs raucously, which is great because it breaks the ice. But underlying that is the shame element. Avoiding talking about it in the hope that we're all magically on the same page, there's a lot of room for that to go wrong. I think if you've never learned about consent, if you've not had these conversations about sex and boundaries and communication and respect, then there is potential to go somewhere or meet someone and do something that's wrong and harmful to that other person and not know it. The framing of sexual encounters for me when I was growing up was very much a sense of a man would chase a woman, would pursue her, it would need to be, and you got to a point where you became irresistible and, you know, she could no longer resist and swooned, you know, this is quasi-Victorian, I suppose. Mm -hmm. It was a sense of coercion, but it was a lighter framing of the word. You could say that it's coercion now, but it was more, yeah, the chase, the thrill of the chase. Yeah. Yeah. And that women were like, you had to act like you were hard to get. That's another part of the whole thing as well, is that the whole slut-shaming or whatever, you know. You... Yeah, that still exists. Yes, does it in quite the same way? Anyway, can we just focus on that whole relatively damaging idea of men have to pursue and women are the prey? There is the idea that, or less so now, for sure, absolutely less so, but... Um, men ask the woman out. This isn't a heterosexual relationship. Men ask the woman out. Men initiate sex. Men ask the woman to get married, if that's what they choose to do. So, yeah, I think that that still exists. And I think that that creates a really interesting conversation around consent as well, because... Often when we think of consent, it's around, again, in a heterosexual relationship, the men getting consent and how do they get it rather than how do we have a meaningful conversation about boundaries and what we both like sexually and how we can both be safe in this interaction. Sounds obvious, right? Yeah, but then there can be a gap between theory and practice. What I really like about the program that Leah was talking to us about, it's called Mates and Dates and it's run by ACC, is that it embraces the complexity of the real world. One of the elements is a video they show the students in year 10. It starts with Shari who is at a friend's house getting ready to go to a party and they put, they're putting on makeup and trying on different clothes and drinking. The kids are mid-teens, 15, 16, so yeah, strictly speaking, they shouldn't be drinking, but they do. I think it's fair to say this happens. So Joe is the boyfriend who was at the party with Shari. He was also drinking. Everyone was saying to him, oh, you're going to get lucky tonight. He started thinking like that also, but had had no conversations with Shari about it previously. She was really drunk and needed some help. They started dancing. She started leaning on him. He thought it was a come on. She thought that he was helping her. She said she needed to lie down. He took that as a cue that they were going to have sex. Went up to her room. She lay down. He turned off the lights. She said, turn the lights back on. And things progressed 
very badly from there. So she says no in this video. The students at no point see the rape happening, but it is implied because that's what the video is about and that's what the conversation is about afterwards. Leah's keen to emphasise that she's a facilitator rather than a teacher. She says that conversation afterwards often go off in all sorts of directions. How alcohol was a factor, what Joe's friends were saying to him, the way Shari felt about the dress she was wearing. So Leah helps the students work through where this has gone wrong and what could have been done to make it better. It's important to say that she's really optimistic about the progress she's seeing in students. Ten years ago, I'd go into a classroom and introduce the concept of consent and ask who knew what it meant. And there would be radio silence in the classroom. Now I go into a classroom and everyone could put their hand up or 50% could put their hand up. But there's a flip side. Younger generations may know more, but some of what they're learning is dodgy at best. Every young person looks at porn. I did when I was 15, but it was, you know, a magazine that I looked at and I looked at it with my friends and we giggled and we laughed and we were like, ah, what's that? You know, and it was part of our learning for sure. It didn't necessarily shape my sexual encounters, but the prevalence now is, it's terrifying. If you're not getting any information or education around what sex is, or what consent is, then this is what your education is based on. You don't base your education on, like, born movies around how you interact in the community. Like, you know, it's action film. It's not real. And no one's telling our young people that these porn films are not real also. Yeah, porn is obviously an issue. On the one hand, if you can't find anyone to have tea with, you can just have tea on your own. But it has the potential to be massively problematic. Ali Moore was really concerned about it. She had interviewed a guy. He was 26, great-looking, tall, young professional who'd never had a proper sexual relationship with a woman because of a porn addiction that started at the age of 14. And he'd literally destroyed the pathways between his... the nerve pathways between his brain and his functioning organs... And he had to try and, he went through a lot of therapy to try and rebuild those. And he was just, he said, able to look at women as human beings. It's easy to laugh off anything about porn, but I think this really is starting to have an effect. I've spoken to a few people myself who admit they almost rely on porn. It seems like just as we're starting to solve all these old problems about consent and relationships... Another major issue is brewing. That fantasy element, the make-believe that takes us away from reality, it can be destructive. Porn has been around forever in one form or another. Our classical studies teacher used to keep his picture books locked up because they had dirty paintings on the side of Greek vases. But now a 14-year-old kid has a supercomputer with endless content pointed at their brain. Let's get the basics right. Sex is complicated. There are always going to be elements of nuance where eroticism, desire and seduction are part of the story. And that's all good, as long as everyone's on board. Just don't be a dick. And the kind of framework of understanding that today's kids are starting to see, that feels like a step in the right direction. And underneath that, there's still a whole layer of other assumptions that are shifting. Or not. Why don't you cook food? That's Glenn's partner, Taylor. 
Next time, we'll be talking about gender and how changes to traditional roles are playing out. Kiwi Riders is a Stuff and Bird of Paradise production. It was written and produced by me, John Daniel, and Glenn McConnell. Associate producer was Noel McCarthy. Editing and sound design by Andre Upston. And music by Anthony Tonin. Carol Hirschfeld is the commissioning editor for Stuff, and Patrick Crudson was the executive producer. This series was made possible by funding from New Zealand On Air. If this episode has brought up any questions or concerns, we have information and resources for seeking help on our website, stuff.co.nz forward slash he'll be right. That's H-E-L-L without the apostrophe, be right. That's also the place to go to listen to other episodes and subscribe on your favourite podcast app.